Live in Nashua, New Hampshire at the Palatial Q100 Studios on Main Street. It's the award-winning Independent Man Podcast. Here he is, the liberal's worst nightmare, the all-American, conservative, Christian, male, and father, the Independent Man. Hey, good evening and good morning and welcome to the Independent Man Podcast. It is Friday morning at midnight, January 27th in the year of our Lord, 2023. And we're going to do something different this evening. We're on the verge of World War III, as you all know by now, in case you're not following the the news or, you know, everything that's going on in the world. It's getting dangerous with uh, Germany sending tanks over now to Ukraine and the United States with tanks. And um, like I said in my podcast earlier last week, that Putin's going to really step this game up uh, coming between now and February 6th because it's the dead of winter. It's the um, shortest of the day, so it's very dark. And they're all saying that he's going to do something over the next uh, week to 10 days um, that's going to be very catastrophic. Um, Because of that, I want to have on, I got permission from my good friend, Dr. Michael Savage, He's an author of 44 books, radio host in the radio, National Radio Hall of Fame. Uh, Back in the day, he had over 20 million listeners on a daily basis. He was only second to Rush Limbaugh. Uh, Now he has a podcast, the Michael Savage Podcast, which is on Tuesdays and Fridays. You can get that on your local Apple podcast. He's interviewing Colonel Douglas McGregor. And Colonel Douglas McGregor is a retired United States Army colonel. Uh, He played a very significant role in the 1990-91 Gulf War. So he has a lot of credentials and he knows his stuff. So I usually don't do this. This is about 15 minutes or so of um, Dr. Savage interviewing Colonel McGregor. If you have the time, please listen to it. It's just going to enlighten you that you're not going to hear about on the mainstream media. You won't read about it in your local or your main um, national papers. Uh, this is going to probably be taken down, this clip. So if I were you, I would listen to it sooner than later. Uh, the media and um, the Banana Republic we're in right now, we um, communism is just about uh, coming very strong in um, in the United States. I can't go on YouTube because they'll um, delete me. I've got kicked out of, off of Facebook. I'm barely hanging on by a thread with Instagram. And my podcast, surprisingly, has survived. I, I think because I'm going through a, a third-party um, anchor to get onto uh, Apple. so But it's a matter of time before they shut everyone down. So uh, please listen to this and um, sooner than later. Again, it's Dr. Michael Savage. He's my go-to guy. He's um, very, very knowledgeable, very street smart, calls it like it is. He's a conservative, but he has he calls it straight down the middle. He'll, he'll, he has put the conservatives in their place over the years, um, and as, as I do. I like to uh, kind of call it down the middle as well, too. And this Colonel Douglas McGregor um, is uh, very, very uh, highly credentialed. And if you listen to him, I think you're going to find a lot of um, insight in this 15- to 18-minute interview with Dr. Michael Savage and Colonel Douglas McGregor here on the Independent Man podcast. Well, I, I hear you, and we're all worried about that. And, you know, I've debunked what I'm calling the domino theory. Every time online someone says, Putin needs to be stopped in Ukraine, not on the Atlantic shores. Ugh, I said, good God. 
I said, stop with the domino theory. That was dismissed after Vietnam. And I'm using a domino theory again, because isn't that what the opposition is using here, the warmongers? The domino of course, theory? it was used in Afghanistan. It was used again in Iraq. Oh, I listened to General Abizade early on. If we don't stop these Islamists now, they'll we'll be fighting them in our own country. Well, I see. Same story. One of, one of my friends who was serving in Iraq at the time, he sent he, he sent a message to me, just texted it to me, and he said, "I'm trying to figure out how all these Arabs with their outfits on are going to get on uh, little uh, uh, boats and float over to the United States to threaten us." Well, they he said take these, out, these they people could... can't get out of their own way. Who are we kidding? They could have taken El Al or. Uh... <laughs> it's, you know, this is the same crap over and over and over again to goad us into war. Well, okay. but this time it's, you and I, it's really dangerous. But you and I both agree that we want peace. The important thing for us to talk about is peace. Absolutely. Again, but- I'm a civilian talk show host. You are a military man. West Point, VMI. Ph.D. in international relations from the University of Virginia. Uh, you led one of the largest tank battles in the Battle of 73 Easting, the U.S. Army's largest tank battle since World War II. I have to keep repeating that because people want to forget your expertise, and I don't forget it. It's just like they try to dismiss me as a nobody, and I won't, won't let them do it online, and I won't let them do it to any of my guests either. We're not all equal just because we can all tweet. That's the problem, you know. So I'm going to ask you as an expert, am I correct in saying the reason we refuse to negotiate is because the military industrial complex is one element and the State Department with its primitive neocon Reagan-esque view of Russia? Are those the two pillars that are keeping this going? I think that's a reasonable uh, assessment. You know, one of the things that people don't seem to understand, and I include many people in uniform, if you go back to 1990 and 1991, uh, you'll remember that we were already in the process of beginning to, quote unquote, downsize the armed forces, especially the army. Yes. And uh, Saddam Hussein did us an enormous favor. If he'd have waited a couple of years, we'd have been in a much weaker position to respond. But he did so in a very timely fashion for us. And uh, it worked out brilliantly because we had an enormous amount of military power in terms of people and equipment and capabilities that were effectively a legacy of the Cold War. Well, today, that legacy is gone. We don't have those surpluses of military power. We don't have a monopoly on all the precision strike, the space-based surveillance, reconnaissance, intelligence, all of those things lie in the hands of the of the Russians and the Chinese and Iranians and others now, particularly the Russians. And we're not prepared for an all-out war. Wait, wait, you're saying the Russians have a more advanced set of systems on those levels than we do? Not necessarily more advanced, but they certainly have the equal of whatever we have. So when this general on Fox News said that we'll take out their, their armed forces, what does he mean? You're going to sat B-52 bombing raids like in Vietnam? Well, they they won't last long because they stand an excellent chance of being shot down by integrated air defenses, something we don't have. We rely on the Air Force to shoot everything down with aircraft, and the Russians rely far more heavily on ground-based integrated air defenses. We don't have anything like that, and they can shoot down everything, including the stealth aircraft that we place so much value on. 
what the SS3s? Is that what they have? Is that what they're called? Or they're more advanced? No. Well, you have the S S400s and S300s, and and the thing is that you have multiple levels and layers of air defense to deal with everything. And we don't have that. In other words, they they can shoot down a drone as easily as they can an aircraft at thirty thousand feet. What's the maximum uh, ceiling on their on their anti aircraft? uh, Oh, I suppose it could go out to forty thousand, maybe higher. It depends. So but the point you, is that they're they're in a position to shoot us down. Let's face it. Now, what about the delivery of the Patriots? I'm going to give you a primitive viewpoint. My point again. I'm very cynical to begin with. So we're sending Patriots, allegedly a very complex system. It's going to take months of training in England or Poland, wherever. Uh, are these patriots that we're sending over somewhat obsolete now compared no. to what they're still very advanced? They're, they're, they are up to the task of dealing with Russian aircraft and uh, tactical ballistic missiles. That's what they were really designed for. So they would stop an incoming nuclear weapon? Well, I don't know that they're going to face any nuclear weapons, uh, but I know that they can stop some, probably not all. I mean, what, first of all, we got to understand that we're we're talking about a battery, and that's perhaps eight launchers. And those eight launchers, each one can fire 128 missiles at a mm. shot. Interesting. Uh, now, when you start doing the math, it doesn't take very long to figure out that since you fire two missiles at every incoming target, you're going to go through a lot of missiles quickly. Mm-hmm. Those are very difficult to build. We don't have a huge arsenal sitting there of missiles. Hmm. So they're going to have to be careful what they use. The second part of this, if you look at that entire aid package, we don't need to go through it all. Most of that stuff won't arrive in Ukraine for months. And the war may well be over by then on Russian terms. Don't they have to bring those batteries in by rail or by truck? One would assume so. And they'll no. be targeted as soon as they cross the Ukrainian border. They'll see them when they get off the railheads in Poland. They'll probably be shipped through Gdansk uh, to the Polish border where they're offloaded or put in some other transport and then moved. And I don't know how far forward they'll want to move them. If they're going to use them for military sensitive command and control sites or they're going to put them around part of, of Kiev, I have no idea. But it's still a point defense weapon. It's not going to defend a large area. In order to defend a really large area in a theater of war like Ukraine, you would need 10 battalions, not just one battery. So this is a gesture. You know, as it's a gesture of support and to threaten Russia that if you keep escalating, we'll escalate. We'll keep raising the stakes. We know they're playing a game of chips. So... um, what is the tactical advantage to Putin to destroy Kiev? Because I don't think he's going to do that. See, I think it's a feign. If I were a tactician, I'd make believe I was going to go for the capital of the nation. I would take out other targets instead. He doesn't want the bad PR and he doesn't want to kill civilians. What's the advantage to Russia to take out Kiev by by saturated saturation bombing? None. None. And uh, the first time that he... The first time the Russians went in towards Kiev, it was a feint. People talk about the quote-unquote Battle of Kiev. That's a lot of nonsense. It never happened. 
that was entirely designed to draw Ukrainian forces away from southern oh. and eastern Ukraine. Well, the State Department had said that they're going to invade Kiev at a certain point. I remember that. And well, I think that's the last option. In other words, what he's interested in doing now, what the what the Russian armed forces being told to do in the next series of offensives that will begin sometime, I suspect, in January, early February, late January, early February, is annihilate what's left of the Ukrainian armed forces on the ground. That's their mission. Dispose of them, eliminate them completely, and at the same time, stop the flow of weaponry coming into Ukraine from Poland. Can they stop it? Well, absolutely they can stop it. And they really haven't set out to do it in a, in a complete military fashion. I mean, they can target the whole length of that border, and they can move forces up to that border if they from need where? to. Well, that depends on how they decide to do it. I mean, they have the capability now of attacking from several directions at once, mm. or they can do it sequentially. Right. Belarus would be one. Sure, of course. They could come down from uh, Belarus down south and put a force between uh, Kiev and the Polish border. Oh, God. I'm actually sitting here trying to absorb all of what you're telling me because you, you've given me some new information about the Patriots. Patriot missile systems, and I think you said that there's eight bat. You said eight batteries. No, no, eight launchers in one battery. There's only one battery. Each launcher fires at one time sixteen missiles. So, what's the total number? We're we sending them a thousand missiles. Well, I, I don't know no. because I would say that we probably can't afford to send more than that. No, you say one battery. I'm sorry, I'm doing the math. One battery, but and there's eight what? Eight, eight, eight launchers. Eight launch in one battery. And how many? Each launcher can fire 16 missiles. 16 missiles per, okay, launcher. per launcher. Well, there's the math. And then you fire two missiles at every incoming target two to make sure that you actually disable the target or destroy it. Well, if I were um, this guy uh, freed, I could probably do the math in my head, the one who was just given uh, the, the, the crypto genius. Well, I wouldn't rely on his numbers. But, uh, <laughs> well, I wouldn't take him to the bank. I'll tell you that. I wouldn't. Have... Good Lord. But it, but having said that, what, what I would also point out is that the Russians are very good at overwhelming air defenses. In other words, if you want to put an air defense battery out of business quickly, first and foremost, you put up a lot of targets that are frankly meaningless and let them expend missiles against huh. them. And then once you know exactly where they are, based on the missiles that they're firing, you target them and destroy them from a distance. Mm. So you've got drones, you've got cruise missiles, uh, you know, you've got tactical ballistic missiles, you've got any number of, of uh, different options that you can use. You need to draw. The point is, to draw that out, this is not going to draw work. out the missiles. Yes, of so course. it's like dropping chaff from a B fifty two bomber over Vietnam. Yes, only this time everybody's going to shoot at the chaff. Unbelievable. So no one's talked about the Russians dropping chaff, in essence, or the equivalent of... Well, that, yeah, because they, they don't want to talk about the various systems they can put up there that are meaningless. That'll just be targets. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. So this patriot gift of the United States for Ukraine is, is uh, window dressing, Colonel? Effectively, yes. Huh. It's not going to change anything. That's why it was so interesting to listen to people talk about it being a game changer. Any competent air defense officer will explain that 
it, it can be successful at defending a fairly small point on the ground, a small section, a neighborhood, if you would, will um, of Kiev. Okay. But that's it. Okay. So, airfield. You know, so if it was Russia's, if I was a Russian general and I'm not, I would say let them put them around Kiev and attack somewhere else. Well, yeah, but you, you still want to put it out of business because what you want to be able to do, which is what they're doing right now, is fly their own aircraft, manned aircraft, with impunity. Who who does? The Russians. Well, wait a minute. Uh, Zelensky just said when he went home, give us the uh, F-16s or whatever he wanted and let us fly them. Ukrainians can fly them just as well. So now he wants he wants our airplanes now? Uh, I'm sure he'll take anything you give him. Uh, what, would, what, would happen? what would happen if Ukrainian pilots were given F-16s? Uh, I don't know because they're not trained to fly them. Well, he said they could do it. I guess they, I could. They, maybe they could fly them as well as he plays the piano. I don't really know what they're capable of. But uh, this is not a laughing business. Look, you're a serious guy. I, I yeah. tend to when I get tense, I tend to tell jokes. That's what I've done since grade school. You and I would have had a <laughs> lot of fun having a few drinks together. But this is not a, a joking matter, Colonel. We're talking about war and peace. We're talking about pushing Putin to a corner. Every day I see another story. He's near dead. Yesterday they put out the bullshit, pardon me, that America, U.S. cancer therapies were keeping him alive. Where are I, they getting this from? Uh, I, I don't know. I have no idea. And when people ask me, is, is, is Mr. Putin seriously ill? Is he dying? I, I have no idea. I, mean, I don't you know, remember I, back, in the, back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, we had these people that called themselves Kremlinologists. And they would sit around and uh, sort of conjecture about which Russian on the Politburo said what. This is a waste of time. Okay. We're dealing with the Russian state and its armed forces. That's where we need to focus. We're not dealing with one man. Putin is not alone. Hmm. And he has the backing of the Russian people. Anybody who thinks otherwise is crazy. Unbelievable. So the Russian people want this over with as well. Of course, everyone wants this to end. I'm sure there are lots of Ukrainians who would like it to end. I've, I've watched videos of Ukrainian soldiers that were posted by them on the Internet, and then suddenly they were removed because the Ukrainian soldiers were saying, we're tired, we're freezing, we're running low on ammunition. Uh, if you complain or if you talk about surrendering or deserting, they pick you up, take you away, and they, they never see you again. Oh, my God. So we, we know the Ukrainian enforcers are out there threatening people. We know that they're now scraping the bottom of the barrel. They're trying to bring in teenagers, put them in uniform, hand them rifles, send them forward. Is that where they're at? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Ukraine's in very serious trouble. And if you listen carefully to Zelensky, uh, he said, well, thank you very much for sending all that you have. But it's really not enough. Right. So always not he, enough. And then in his interview uh, with The Economist and his uh, commanding general, uh, Zaluzhny, they both flat out said that the probability of withstanding what is coming in the winter from Russia is very low. Uh, you can give us a lot of things that will help, but they are far stronger than we thought, and we are not as strong as we said. I mean, they've been as honest as they can without That's jeopardizing the phony narrative. Yeah. Well, Colonel, on the last podcast with me, you mentioned the winter offensive, and of course, the smart money says that Russia is going to use the, the the winter as they have used yes. since since prior to Napoleonic times to defeat the enemy. Of course, it was in, in reverse. That's where the enemy had invaded Russia. We understand that. So, uh, why would the winter 
be in favor of Russia when their own troops have to fight in that same weather going forward? Well, the Russian soldiers don't lack for proper clothing. They don't lack for heat. They don't lack for food. They don't lack for ammunition. Uh, they have been training very, very vigorously. And one mm -hmm. of the reasons they've been waiting is that in southern Ukraine, down near Odessa and the southern part of the area held by the Russians, it still is not frozen. During the day, the temperature rises to about 34 degrees, and at night it falls to 20. Mm. In order for you to move effectively with thousands of armored fighting vehicles and wheels and so forth, mm. it, has to, it has to drop below freezing and stay there. Now, northern Ukraine is frozen, but the south is not. Mm. And they're waiting for that to happen. And they need two weeks of consecutive days of, fr of freezing temperatures in the south for the ground to freeze. Unbelievable. See, now we're talking with a man who commanded a tank. How many tanks were under your command, Colonel? Well, we had 42 tanks, 42 Bradley infantry fighting vehicles, and eight guns, mm -hmm. uh, 155 millimeter self-propelled cannon. What does and 1,100 men? <laughs> that's what you commanded in 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 in. Well, that's battle. what I led into battle. Yes, led into battle. You weren't sitting in a chair in the Pentagon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what kind of tanks do the Russians have these days? Well, they have now put T-90s into the field. What we've been dealing, what we were dealing with at the beginning of this, were a lot of tanks that had been sitting in uh, essentially the equivalent of a used car lot. In other words, 7,000 old tanks. And the Russian troops were told when they went into Ukraine, if there's anything wrong with this thing, don't try to fix it. If, uh, if it's damaged in combat, just get out, walk away from it. We'll give you another tank. Hmm. They, they really did not bank on this major war. They thought there would be a negotiated settlement, remember? Oh, 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 so oh. now what has happened is that the T-90s are finding their way into all the Russian units, T-80s and T-90s. The T-90 is the best available that they've got, which is uh, in most ways equal to or as good as uh, an M1. Is or it? A, yeah, it is. And the advantage that the Russians have over us in the tank department is not so much in armament. Our armament is excellent. Our guns are excellent. Our problem is the engine. We mm. have a turbine engine in the tank. And as most of your viewers understand, turbine engines were designed for use by jet aircraft. Mm. Well, we put a turbine engine back in the late 70s, early 80s into the M1 series tanks. And the M, the turbine engine problem is that as long as it sits still and you've got the engine running, it burns as much as it does running when you're moving. Mm. In other words, whether you're moving or sitting still, you've got about seven and a half to eight hours of fuel. That's it. So you tend to shut the tank down. Now, they built since uh, 1990 an auxiliary uh, power pack. They They want to turn on while you're sitting still. But the problem with all of that is that you've got to shut that down, and then it takes a little a little time to crank up the turbine engine. Mm -hmm. So you have a very, very high fuel usage rate with the tanks, far mm. higher than the Russians. And then secondly, the turbine engine burns at 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, boy. It emits a thermal signature that can be viewed from low-Earth orbiting satellites at seventy or 80,000 feet. You're talking about our M1s. Yes, and the Russians don't have turbine engines? No, they're using the traditional diesel engines. Oh. And they also have thermal blankets, which they put over their 
engine compartments in order to conceal the uh, thermal signature. So our thermal signature stands out brilliantly. Very easy to find us. From the sky. Yes, all the way up into space. And uh, that also makes you a, a, a brilliant target for anybody who wants to destroy you. Well... is WQIN Nashua Pepperell Group W, a Westinghouse Broadcasting Station.